you know, he's chosen what he's chosen. And um, I think it's quite sad, really, that, um, that that it's ending like this for Cristiano Ronaldo. But, you know, he, he he's big enough to make his own choices. And um, I'm sure there'll still be, he'll still be creating headlines, um, even in Saudi Arabian football. Yeah, I wonder if he will shine a light on the lack of opportunities for female footballers in Saudi Arabia. I doubt it very much. But mm. um, I have to say, Paul, though, that this kind of stuff works, though. You know, it's he goes to a place like... Um, Saudi Arabia a club like Al Nassar and their Instagram followers shoot through the roof people are interested in them now I know that there's kids that would like jerseys from there because they don't understand what kind of a place it is or or what um, it symbolises so it's like another example of sports washing yeah it is and um, listen this is all about trying to to shine some some positive light on on Saudi Arabia on the club but also on Saudi Arabia and it's probably you know part of his contract seems to be some form of representation for for the Saudi Arabian Football Association I'm sure that's with the World Cup in mind and, and trying to pitch their their best kind of uh, foot forward for hosting a major a major tournament but you're right I mean you look at the the social media numbers I saw something that was on Twitter earlier about maybe their Instagram followers have gone up by 9x since he mm-hmm. signed and, and of course they will leverage that in any way they can and for any club that signs Cristiano Ronaldo it always comes with that that you know the shirt sales and the publicity around the club will always be boosted so um, yeah listen I'm sure they'll, they'll wheel them out where and when they can uh, with the money that they're paying they have every right to do so but it obviously doesn't take away from you know the greater problems that exist within within countries like that but they will they will I'm sure try to use Chris Ronaldo to deflect some of that negative negative spotlight on them absolutely they're getting a lot of uh, of headlines and uh, media opportunities because of him um, let's move on Mark because it is uh, time to start talking about the transfers or the potential transfers that are happening um, around the world and, and the Enzo Fernandez one is catching a lot of people's um, attention Gary Lineker said are Chelsea going to pay 127 million for him that's one hell of a price he's a good player but bloody hell and you can't help but nearly agree with Gary on that one because it is huge money yeah, it really would be. Um, you know, then you often get this, don't you? After a summer where you, you say don't buy after um, a World Cup, you get an inflated price. Um, you know, it, it, it's not a reliable form guide, um, and and yet Chelsea, it looks like are going to to really go big on Enzo Fernandez, who does you know who 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 does look very good. I, I thought he had a. Um, a, a good World Cup. I don't. I don't think it was clear cut that he was the best young player um, at, at the World Cup, but he certainly improved Argentina when he went. Um, it got into the team after that Saudi Arabia defeat. He's had a breakout season with Benfica um, uh, as well, and he's played well in the Champions League. So. Uh, I'm not saying he, he, you know, he'd go to Chelsea and um, you know not find a spot, but it is an extraordinary um, amount of money for somebody that you know cost Benfica nothing like that, you know, not that long ago. And Benfica, are rich at the moment in comparison to um, other teams around Europe and particularly in Portugal. You look at like Porto really struggling, of course, because they sold uh, Nunez. Um, you know, only in the summer, so they're not forced to sell um, and. And so that kind of, in in turn, forces Chelsea's hand to have to pay the release clause. I mean, I, I think he's I think he's better than what they've got in midfield. When you think that N'Golo Kante 
um, you know, can't really be relied upon anymore for his fitness. Um, Jorginho and Kovacic, I think, are two players that um, do do reasonably well for Chelsea without um, you know being being brilliant. So um, you know, this is what Todd Bowley said he would do. Um, it wasn't that long ago he said he wanted to buy the best young players in the world, and that was the market that Chelsea would go for. The best young players cost a lot of money, and so um, it. it I, I think they'd be overpaying for him, but you could also say that you know he's somebody that you know if you look at it, could give you six seven years of service and and probably repay that. I remember when Luka Modric went to Real Madrid and, and people thought that that was a lot of money, about thirty million, wasn't it? And um, you know he, he's been there a, a decade, and so you know you you can sort of you know build a legacy. Um, they don't have to you know not everybody sort of departs after eighteen months, but. Um, I, I still think that, you know, from Chelsea's point of view, there are probably more sensible signings out there. It feels a bit like a statement signing um, for a team that's struggling at the moment. Paul, you're a Chelsea fan. 127 million. It feels like that you're you're banking 127 million on somebody following through in their potential. Yeah, absolutely. My, my main concern about the the transfer is just whether or not it was it was somebody who was on the radar for a period of time, or they've just taken a look at him over the course of the World Cup and and thought, yeah, that's somebody who would fit into our system. That would be my worry with with how the the transfer has kind of grown legs over the last week or so. But yeah, you're right, Marie. I mean, you look at Anthony at Manchester United. You could say that it's a similar kind of case whereby they paid an extortionate transfer fee for somebody of a similar type of age profile, and then they're able to recognise the transfer over the couple of or course of let's say five ten years and then it becomes more of a digestible figure but another worry I have is is just you know with regards to the likes of a Connor Gallagher somebody who had such a strong season for Crystal Palace last year somebody who's come through the Chelsea Academy and has shown promise and has done it in the Premier League mm-hmm. over the course of a season you're putting another block in his way and, and just maybe shutting doors for him on, and his progression through into the first team, somebody who he could replicate the likes of a Mason Mount and grow in the Chelsea jersey. And then you're probably looking at chipping him out and bringing Enzo Fernandez in. So I don't know, to be honest. I do think they need a centre midfield player. I think it's it's probably gotten a little stale with Jorginho and Kovacic. They've been great servants to the club, but I, I do think it needs freshening up in the middle of the pitch. And uh, somebody with a bit of creativity and a bit of legs. Is Enzo Fernandez the answer to that? I, I personally haven't seen enough of him to to say yes is the answer to that question. But the, the sums of money they're being thrown around for young players is absolutely <laughs> obscene. Whether or not he's worth it, we'll wait and see. I, I would imagine he will he will end up there all right. It could just add to the pressure Graham Potter's under, though, Paul, when you bring in somebody like that, if it doesn't start to work ninth now on the table and a lot of noise has been made about the job that he's done. I know he's only in it, but that's not the way football management works. No, it's not. And I guess there's two ways of looking at this. And, um, you know, we, we don't want to judge Graham Potter on, on the squad that he has at the moment, but he does need to get more out of the players that are at his at his disposal at the moment. And you can't say that he's doing that right now because some of the performances have been way under par from individuals and collectively as a unit. And um, with that, what worries me is that he, he's constantly changing his team. And I get that because he's, he's kind of joined mm-hmm. what... That's his thing as well, season. though, isn't it? Like he he does that. He he changes his team all the time, and it you know it has worked in the past for him. Yeah, it has. But I was I would like to see like a bit of consistency, at least whether it be in in the middle of the pitch or the front three, and and look to start forming relationships and try to develop patterns that you would like to see. Graham Potter's ideas being rolled out on a weekly basis. So there's a couple of questions. It's obviously it's a big job, and he's probably not worked with with players of 
that magnitude before had to deal with salaries mm-hmm. or transfer fees on, on players' heads like like you will do with Chelsea. So the pressure is naturally going to come with or without the likes of Enzo Fernandez. Chelsea expect to be in the top four. They expect to win trophies. Um, Todd Bowley has entered the building. I'm sure that will be much the same as it was mm-hmm. with Abramovich. I would imagine they would stick by him and give him a bit more time than, than we've seen in previous seasons. But don't get me wrong, if Chelsea are sitting where they are in the league at the end of the season, Graham Potter would be under pressure in that off-season at the beginning of next year. If it wasn't to go to plan, don't be surprised. I mean, they've never been shy of pulling the trigger before, Marie, and I don't expect that to change. Um, Mark, what's the expectation on Chelsea now, just given where they stand with the second half of the season coming up or we're in it now? Yeah, well, I, I mean, you've got Man City uh, twice, haven't they, this weekend? In the, I mean, it's a bit, a bit unlucky to draw City in both domestic cup competitions. So I, I think the expectation for Chelsea has to be top four. Um, I know they're, they're, they're off that pace at the moment, but um, you look, you know, Liverpool, Tottenham are not playing great at the moment. Maybe Newcastle come back to the pack a little bit. So there is still an opportunity to um, to, to get involved in, in that top four fight. I think that has to be sort of minimum expectation for somebody like Chelsea um, every season. Um, and the Champions League offers... Uh, Chelsea wouldn't be the first team that, you know, if they were to go and win it, that weren't playing well domestically in the first half of the season and then go and win the Champions League. I mean, if you go back through past history of Champions League winners, it's about peaking, really, you know, in sort of March, April and May time. So I think they'll, they've got Borussia Dortmund in that, that they'll fancy their chances of getting to the quarterfinals and then who knows, you know, what happens. But I think that the league is always the main target and so therefore, you know, top four has to be what Chelsea are going for. I mean, I, I, I watched that game on Sunday against Nottingham Forest and I was sort of thinking to myself, if Abramovich was in charge, I think Potter would be sacked, um, you know, the next day. <laughs> but then you think, well, if Abramovich was in charge, he probably wouldn't have appointed Potter in the first place. And Todd Bowley has, uh, again, been very open in sort of speaking to the fans and saying that this is part of a long-term project and that there's no immediate pressure on Graham Potter so you have to trust his sort of word and, and, and what he's saying and that, that Potter will be given time but I, I do agree if they don't get top four and they don't make their mark in the Champions League I think it's a really difficult sell for, for you know to persuade Chelsea fans that, that Potter's the right person to take them forward This sounds ridiculous but it's, it's absolutely true Chelsea are a completely different team when Reese James is in the side and um you, you can add Ben Chilwell to that equation I think the two of them have only started together in two of the last 46 games for Chelsea so if they could get them back fit Murray they look a far more lethal team going forward and they look far more defensively solid when those two are playing so a couple of niggly injuries to Reese James can't really mm-hmm. seem to get himself fully fit but if he could you know he's such a huge addition to that Chelsea team So Mark if you were to pick between Chelsea or Liverpool getting top four football right now who would you say was would get there? <laughs> well, they, they both played absolute stinkers in, in the last sort of couple of days. I would go for Liverpool um, ahead of Chelsea. Um, I, I just I know the defensive issues are there for everybody to see, but I trust their forwards to be able to score goals at the moment. And I think that's you know it's not the only problem, but it's a big one for Chelsea. Just nobody that you, you fancy to score 
um, you know, any significant amount of goals for them. Aubameyang, not the player that he was. Kai Havertz, I think the debate's still out as to what his best position is. So at least with Liverpool, um, you've got sort of Jota to come back. There's Luis Diaz um, to come back, Gakpo to, to come into the team as well. So I think that there is far more firepower in that Liverpool team and I would I would take them as the more likely team of the two to get into the top four, albeit um, I know that Liverpool fans won't have been happy with what they saw yesterday um, at Brentford and you know that, that clearly wasn't good enough. No, it wasn't. But Paul, would you agree just given the fact you're a Chelsea fan? It's very tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think it's going to be very difficult for both of them to get into the top four. They're certainly going to have to show a bit more form. But yeah, I, I would agree with Mark. I think, you know, even if you look at Liverpool last night, the Nunez chance, you know, if, if he scores or Simicast scores, and you could say that in kind of similar fixtures gone by, you kind of get the feeling that they might kick on. They're not right now. But they certainly look like they, they have the potential to score more goals in the final third and win more games. So, Paul, what is going wrong for Liverpool defensive frailties aside? Because it has to be bigger than that. Yeah, well, you, you can dumb it down into, I guess, the most basic form, and that's they're, they're not just a, they're not nearly as aggressive as they mm. were in years gone by. Um, is that attitude? I think it's attitude, but I also think it's players. If you look at the players who partnered Fabinho last night, Harvey Elliott and Thiago, neither of them are really kind of ball-playing, aggressive, get-in-your-face type players. They want to be on the ball. They want to play that extra pass, and they want to come alive when you're in possession of the football, but probably don't want to do the hard yards or the nitty-gritty stuff that rewind 24 months. Jordan Henderson and Gigi mm-hmm. Van Alden were doing very well in that Liverpool team. And when you take those type of players out of the out of the side they've started to become a little easier to play against. And if, if you look at the chances that have been created against them, the goals have been scored against them, centre midfielders are getting time on the ball, they're able to get their head up, Liverpool play a high line, it's not a difficult pass for Premier League footballer to put the ball in behind and have somebody run on to, or pick out a runner. Um, and they look very easy to get to get at. And I think you've seen that over the last number of weeks, they got very lucky against Leicester like with the two own goals. I thought the performances were way off. And they just look an easier team to play against, Marie, in the most basic form. There's obviously kind of more complicated and, and you can maybe question some of the players and the attitude of of some of the, you know, the, the play without the ball and the aggression of the press. But um, I think in that midfield area, they're really struggling. Mark Klopp always says that there is you can identify a problem, but it's not an easy thing to fix. And that was what he said about the defence before. But when you're looking around the pitch, it feels like there's a lot of problems there. And if there's no quick fix, what are they going to do? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is a collective um, issue. And I think that you know, Klopp... Whenever something goes wrong, he he never goes for the individual. It's always the collective. You know, if the if the forwards and the midfield press better, then that that helps the defence. Um, you know, if they move the ball better through defence into midfield up to the forwards, they've got more chance of scoring goals. So I think that there is a collective issue there. I mean, he he, he changed the formation, didn't he, um, before the World Cup, and um, they they occasionally sort of played four in midfield and um, you know he, he tried that um, he's tried like a more sort of I suppose a basic 4-2-3-1 um, the, the, you know rather than the 4-3-3 three, three that I suppose has become his trademark so I don't expect the defence to suddenly drop off kind of 10 yards because I'm not sure that's what Klopp coaches I think he will just expect the execution to be better um, from, from the players that he picks but maybe we don't see Liverpool back 
to that kind of level until next season when they're able to sort out those legs in midfield. <laughs> yeah, the, the Jude Bellingham, um, you can just see how obvious somebody like that yeah. um, would improve the team. I mean, it's going to be a very competitive market for Bellingham, assuming he leaves in the summer. But I, th- I think it is a collective um, problem and... I still don't see him kind of just dropping off because, um, you know, that's just against what he's coached, um, not only at, at Liverpool, but also Borussia Dortmund. And, and maybe that is almost a weakness. You know, it's one of his great strengths is that he's so single-minded in the best way to play. And then, you know, that can also be a weakness at times. And maybe just at the moment, Liverpool are in one of those kind of spells where um, the collective's not working and they're much easier to kind of just knock the ball over the top. I think individually, Van Dijk... I mean, I didn't think he had as good a World Cup as what some people suggested. I felt that Nathan Ake was the best defender in um, that Dutch team. And... You know, he, I, I don't think he's playing at the level that he was when Liverpool were, um, you know, uh, sort of marching on to league titles and, and really at, at the best of um, the, 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 their game. And so maybe there's a slight issue there um, with Van Dijk, but I do think it's more of a collective problem rather than individuals. Yeah, on the Jude Bellingham thing, he did, uh, Klopp did... Um, sound very cautious when he said that it's, you know, it's not Monopoly money here and, but it actually feels like it's Monopoly money when you're talking about Fernandes and it being 127 million Yeah I, I mean it, it certainly is I'm not sure Jude Bellingham is what Liverpool need Marie. I think somebody who's, who's going to be more of a, a hard runner in the middle of the park somebody who's going to get about somebody probably more in the mould of a Declan Rice I think would, would suit Liverpool better he, he would give the likes of a Virgil van Dijk I think more protection I think to be fair to van Dijk and Kanate you know when you're playing in the middle of the pitch Declan Rice do you think? Yeah I do I do I think somebody who's more in the mould of a Genie Vinaldum or a younger Jordan Henderson would be more beneficial to Liverpool because if you think of Liverpool at their best they were so hard to play against they'd suffocate you when you had the ball you didn't even have half a second to get your head up and pick out a pass that's completely the opposite now um, I'm not sure they will have the same problems at the top end of the pitch when you get the likes of Diaz and Jota back that mm-hmm. they do in the middle of the pitch and I think creativity is is not something that they are going to be lacking but I also think they get enough of from kind of the fullback areas that you can maybe do without a um, Jude Bellingham type player I think somebody who is a bit dirtier a bit less sexy on the eye is what Liverpool need and I think someone like Declan Rice would fit the mould really well for them they probably have more Monopoly money to spend on him alright he's still Monopoly money what's he I don't know but English International you're probably talking the guts of 100 million again Uh, Jude Bellingham any day over uh, Declan (laughs) Rice Um, Mark I love this part of the season because it feels like it's still all to play for as well and when you're looking at the table and see Arsenal at the top of it on 43 points Man City 36 Arsenal playing Newcastle tonight Newcastle third it's kind of hard to believe that that's the state of play at the moment even seeing Man United in in fourth um, place is a a strange thing when you think of where they were at the start of the the season but Arsenal do play Newcastle and the question still remains are they the real deal or not and when are we going to find out (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, they've they've had a number of tests. I've, you know, we're halfway through the season now. Um, you know, I I initially was not a believer, um, and you you know you're you're wanting them to pass tests, and then you know they play Liverpool and they beat um, Liverpool, and you know that that was supposed to be the test. They easily beat Tottenham, and Brighton away could be a tricky game. Um, you know, you you've seen um, you know what was it, two days later, Liverpool go to Brentford and, and, and not able to win. And we've seen Man City 
drop points in a number of matches and you know they pass another test and then people say oh yeah but McAllister wasn't playing and uh, Casado wasn't playing but you know every team has injuries every team has suspensions and, and problems and you know I felt that Gabriel Jesus's injury would be um, another reason why um, Arsenal couldn't sustain it and yet um, they're still scoring lots of goals and Ketia um, as well has been you know adding to, to the goal tally but I think it's the wide areas Saka and Martinelli um, absolutely devastating um, and you know the, the team is just on an absolute high at the moment and as long as they don't get a significant injury crisis I mean I'm starting to think now that maybe they should be favourites um, to win the league it feels like quite a big gap that they've got on Manchester City this is a big game um, tonight no doubt about it against Newcastle who are a hard team to play against and you know, they don't give many goals away usually and they take time off the clock as well you've got to be quite patient against them we've seen that in a number of big away games they can um, you know I suppose be professional slash time waste and, and just make it awkward for you so and, and they offer a threat on the counter attack themselves so uh, this is a, another test for Arsenal but you know they're, they're passing all of them um, so far they're, they're playing some great football along the way it's quite hard as a Tottenham fan myself to, uh, to, to, to praise them too much but you know if you just look at it objectively um, you know they, they really are uh, you know a joy to watch and that, that they're doing it with a lot of young players that are enthusiastic and getting better as the season's going on and so um, you I, I think the size of their squad is potentially a, an issue um, but as long as they don't get too many injuries I mean they've been able so far to you know to get over the Gabriel Jesus one and and just keep going. I think Odegaard's having a, a fantastic season. Saliba at the back as well. So um, they, they, they're just playing great. And, you know, they, they will expect to beat Newcastle tonight. And if they do, um, yeah, that, that is a big old lead um, for, for Man City to try to claw back against them, I think. And it is the window as well. So if they need someone, Paul, they do have an opportunity now to go and get it. Where do you think they need to be strengthened? Well, they've been linked with Modric, haven't they, who, mm -hmm. who plays in the wide areas. Would have seen a bit of him when he played against Ireland. In, is he Shakhtar? He is, yeah, yeah, the winger, um, good player, and maybe he's thinking if something similar was to happen to the likes of Martinelli or, or Saka like it did to Gabriel Jesus, maybe they're a little short in those areas. They do have the option of the likes of playing Zinchenko further forward and Vieira, who they brought in from this, during the summer, but maybe they don't have the legs or, or the pace and energy that he might want should one of them get injured. So maybe that's an area they could probably do with another centre-half. I, I just worry that maybe if Gabriel or Saliba got injured, do they have the strength and depth to, to kind of maintain the, the defensive solidity that they have shown? Um, so there may, be, there may be two positions that they could look to strengthen, but I think what Arteta's done really well is he's getting more out of the players that were already there. Similar to Eddie Howe in what he's done at Newcastle, I think mm -hmm. the likes of Shaka, the likes of Gabriel, the likes of Ben Weiss, he's, just, he's brought them up another level and they seem to have ramped up their game and collectively then as a whole, they all seem to be singing from the same hymn sheets. And it, it's going really well for them at the moment. I still think... Man City have one of those freakish runs in them where they go, you know, 10, 15 games on the bounce without losing it, without losing the game and maybe claw that gap back a bit on Arsenal. But in, with the form they've shown at the moment, if they win tonight, 
I think they go 10 clear of Man City who play yeah. Chelsea and then play Manchester United that's a substantial gap to have so um, it's gone well for us so this will be a stiff test tonight I think Newcastle are really well set up particularly when they haven't got the ball and they tend to win it high up the park and can break on teams and have been very successful doing that against the top team so it'll be an interesting one to see how Arsenal get on tonight but their home form's been magnificent and just touching on Martin Odegaard his creativity his use of the ball has been absolutely superb and the front three are absolutely on fire at the moment so I would expect a home win there Marie what about uh, United and Bournemouth, Mark? It feels like it's the perfect game for Man United to keep moving in that direction away from Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know they're they're on a bit of a roll at the moment. Manchester United. Um, I'm not sure even Eric Ten Hag would have thought they'd be in this position after the start that they had. But um, they look a lot more confident. You know, it, they they didn't panic when the goal didn't come against Wolves. Um, just kept playing. You know, almost you know, like out of the best teams and the really good teams, they they kind of just know it's coming. Yeah, and 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 I was very impressed with the way that they got that job done. I know Wolves are struggling, but it was a tricky game. I think Lopetegui's just gone in, um, and and they were able to overcome that. It's been a it's been a pretty nice start for them back from. Um, the, the World Cup if you look at you know, Nottingham Forest Wolves and the position of Bournemouth I expect them to win um, tonight I, I, I think it's absolutely true what Ten Hag said in his press conference about wanting and needing another striker I, I don't think that's him um, being unreasonable in his demands and you know that could be the difference if they get sort of another centre forward in that might be what sort of gets them top four and I didn't fancy it at the start of the season I certainly didn't fancy it um, when, when they were getting absolutely thrashed at, at Brentford and I think he's done so well really in, in his first season to just sort out a number of issues there's there so many things going on in the background at United he seems to have just calmed everybody down and I think you know a lot of people felt that Casemiro that Manchester United spent too much money on Casemiro and there's no resale value and you know there's a lot of reasons why he wouldn't be considered I suppose a, a money ball type signing but I think he's been brilliant for Manchester United and um, you know it, it, as long as he carries on at that level he will be worth the money that they paid for him because he's he's made such a massive difference to them in central midfield Absolutely I don't think anyone could have predicted really how well he was going to do or how well he was going to fit in as well Anyone uh, spring to mind that could fit it for them as a striker Paul? Well, they've been linked to it with Joe Felix from Atletico Madrid. Now, he's probably not your your out-and-out out nine who, who's maybe going to lead the line and, and run in behind, but he might be somebody who would bring out the best and the likes of a Fernandez or an Anthony or Marcus Rashford, so maybe a nice player to bring into the mix. It's very difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, if you think about number nines dotted across Europe, Vlahovic, Juventus, maybe somebody like that, but you're talking... You're going into hundreds of millions again here. That's all we seem to be talking about. Hundreds of millions. <laughs> I, I really don't know, Marie. I really don't know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Shane Felix came to the Premier League and Manchester United would be certainly one of the teams to be going after him. Leicester and Fulham is also on this evening. And looking at the table as well, like seeing Fulham, um, they're up there, they're eight, they're ahead of Chelsea. It's, it's almost hard to believe, really, when you think about it. Um, just again, uh, given the expectation on, on them this year, uh, Mark. Yeah, I, I think Marco Silva, um, yeah, he's rebuilding his reputation, isn't he? Uh, as well, it took a, a battering uh, at Everton. Um, I think there have been other managers that have struggled at Everton. Maybe that the, the, the sort of issues there are much bigger than than the Marco Silva or any of the managers. And I, I like their their signings. I think Palinia in in midfield has has done very well for them. And you know, Mitrovic hasn't been fully fit either side of 
the World Cup and you, you sort of look at Fulham and think, well, you know, it, they're almost a one-man team um, and, and if Mitrovic doesn't do it, then then who is? But um, they're, they're actually the collective there, you know, and I think that's that's the, 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 the sign of a good coach is when you improve players, you know, that, that you've already got. Someone like Tim Ream, sort of two or three times he's been in the Premier League previously and I don't think there were many people that felt he was good enough to, to play at the level and yet, He's now in a kind of back four that's organised, got people in front of him that, that's able to protect him, and he looks a much better player. And I think that that is down to, um, you know, the, the coaching and a much more sensible transfer policy than the last time Fulham were in the, in the Premier League. And yeah, I'm not sure they'll finish as high as what they are at, at the moment. But you know, as long as they're nowhere near relegation, then you know, you, you can't. Um, sort of say anything bad or negative about Fulham because you know if they're anywhere near mid-table that that's a great achievement for a club like that. It is, and uh, just on Everton and Brighton, which is taking place tonight as well, and the Everton fans, Mark, are planning to stage a sit-down demonstration at Goodison Park uh, next month to protest their unhappiness with the incompetent management of the club. Will it be a futile protest? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it. I, when they're talking about management, I mean, I think it does stem right to the top. I mean, they've had, and I'm not saying Frank Lampard is sort of you know a, a great manager. I think sort of jury's still out there, but they've had big name coaches. They've had, you know, have tried absolutely everything there, and most managers are, have failed, which suggests that the problems run sort of much deeper than. Um, than that I mean I never understand sort of you know protesting inside the stadium I mean you know if you really want to get your point across then um, you don't go and you, you, you do it from outside um, you know most club owners as long as you're paying your money um, you know that, 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 that's that's the main thing for them but I definitely think that Everton um, need I don't I, I feel like they need kind of a, I mean they've had sporting directors and they've not worked out but I, I just whenever they sign players I'm, I just always feel like um, you know it's short term or doesn't appear to be a great plan behind what they're doing even down to the fact when they allowed um, Sims to go out on loan at Sunderland at the start of the season they didn't have any fit strikers and you know you're just wondering like what you know, what, why did they do that? Um, that? That didn't seem to make any sense. And I think you could, over the last decade, probably sort of throw about sort of 20 things that have made no sense at Everton. So I, I totally get the, the frustration of the supporters. I'm not sure it really helps the team, though, because, you know, they were one of the reasons, really, that Everton stayed up last season. Um, you know, the backing they got at Goodison. If that disappears, then um, there's not much else there, really, that, that's going to keep them in the Premier League. They've had to do a couple of unofficial sit-down protests watching that team over the last two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it hasn't been uh, hasn't been pretty for any Everton fan that I know. Anyway, they spend a lot of time giving out. Uh, they're playing Brighton, and I guess Irish eyes who are not supporting Everton uh, will be hopefully on Evan Ferguson. We're waiting for a bit of team news, but Paul, um, we saw him coming on and scoring against Arsenal. I'm not sure what day it was because all the days have uh, have uh, moulded into one now. Um, but it's amazing to see him. It is, and listen, you need a bit of luck, and and Danny Welbeck being injured has obviously maybe promoted him up onto the bench, and 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 got him on the pitch. And you're just looking as a young player when you come on to take those opportunities because there's so few and far between for somebody of that age. But any time I've seen Evan playing, I mean, he's got all the tools at his disposal to be a top top player. He's he's big, he's quick, he's strong, and if you just see how he took his goal the other night, he was so composed in front of goal. So hoping for more of the same. Um, listen, we don't expect him to be starting games for Brighton in in the next six months, but if he was even to come on and get a couple of minutes here and there and progress, 
potentially with a loan move further down the line um, as long as he kind of continues in that upward trajectory I've absolutely no doubt this fella's going to be a top player Yeah I saw that tweet about um, with the picture of him playing Kennedy Cup and it was only uh, four years ago he's just turned 18 <laughs> it's like crazy. it's really hard to believe yeah. he's built like a man and uh, that will really help him being a, being a front man wouldn't be surprised to see him get a couple more minutes for Ireland because uh, we certainly haven't got players playing at the top end of the Premier League yeah Mark is there much buzz about him over your way um, well, I, I wouldn't say that there, there's a huge amount um, at, at the moment. I think that you know the Brighton are one of them weird sort of teams, really. That doesn't they, they just don't get much press. Um, you know, <laughs> well, I, I, I suppose you, the fact you, where they are located. Mark, if you open any paper Sorry? here at the moment, there's like double page spreads everywhere, pictures <laughs> of him. He's on the front of the ORG website here in front of me as well. Like it's pretty much all we're talking but about. I, right I now. think the the, the the important thing for for, for Anybody at Brighton, I think, particularly in those four positions, is they've got the right coach because Deserbi, you know, that was his calling card in Italy. He improved so many of those Sassuolo forwards, you know, making them Italian internationals, bringing absolute fortunes into the club, play a very attractive style of football that I think, you know, as, as a forward player, that's what you want. So, I mean, I think he's he's, he's at the right club because they, they give young players a chance. He's got the right manager because he believes in that policy as well. So I think over the next sort of year or so, you know, it, it's all there really, not only for him, but for any of the young players at Brighton to, you know, to, to, to make their mark. And, um, yeah, I, like I said, I really liked Zerbi, the, the coach. I thought it was a, a smart appointment. He's really fun. And, um, you know, I, whoever plays for Brighton in those four positions um, should be looking at getting more goals, I would say, uh, over the next year or so because he will throw players forward and play that, that kind of style of football that most football fans like to see. Great, that sounds uh, like we've got something to look forward to over the next couple of years. Mark Langdon, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Paul Curry, stay with us. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be back shortly. Plenty more to come. Game on on 2FM. Uh, the game starts with a Cincinnati touchdown. Buffalo gets a field goal. And then as Cincinnati is driving with the football for the second time, DeMar Hamlin, a second-year safety out of Pittsburgh, tackles T. Higgins, and he collapsed back to the turf. And the reaction of the players on the field was all you needed to see. The urgency with which the medical personnel were moving, it was very concerning because it was clear from their reaction that this situation was dire and that Hamlin was in distress. And as you see, those are hard to look at, man. Um, Stefan digs in tears as he sees his teammate on the field being tended to. And uh, as reports have been given throughout this hour and change since this injury. CPR administered on the field, as Joe Buck just recently has shared with us. Hamlin is in critical condition. You see the prayers and we join them. Now that was Scott Van Pelt of ESPN speaking about Buffalo Bills safety Damar Hamlin who is in a critical condition after he collapsed during last night's game against the Cincinnati Bengals. I'm joined now by Jeff Shepard, our US sports correspondent. Um, Shep, just listening there to Scott Van Pelt and, and seeing those pictures of Damar, it was such a distressing time for everybody involved and for Damar himself who is in a critical condition. Um, any update on how he is? 
Yeah, so Marie, he is still in critical condition at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, which is a hospital that is located about two miles away from where the Bengals and the Bills were playing last night. Um, So he is still there. The Buffalo Bills, his teammates, the remainder of his team has gone back to Buffalo. Uh, They went back there uh, late last night, um, and he's still listed in critical condition. There is no update on his uh, status at this time. we do know he he went into cardiac arrest, um, which is what the Bills, you know, said early this morning. Um, he made the he made the tackle, and um, you know he kind of got hit in the chest when he made the tackle, and so not getting into any type of speculation or anything. But you know, it seems like that's where the injury or the incident, you know, occurred. And it, as as Scott Van Pelt mentioned, he stood up after the tackle and was on his feet for maybe two or three seconds and then just collapsed backwards. And immediately, you know, the, the trainers came out and started assessing the situation. And, and again, he was he was given CPR out on the field, and then he was also given oxygen out on the field, and I believe an AED was also used, a defibrillator out there. So, I mean, this is something that we have really never seen before in American sports, an incident like this. It's been likened to Christian Eriksson in the, in the World Cup and the scenes were quite similar. Just you could tell from looking at the medical personnel that they knew that it was so serious. Um, for Damar, they were able to restore his heartbeat on the field. They said that in the, in the statement that they released. And I guess it's just a waiting game now and hoping that, that Damar is OK and that he can get back to to live in some sort of a life again but just even from a like a sports perspective and a sports fans um, perspective it's it's such a a shocking thing and and what's the reaction been like just around the United States Shep? Yeah so I mean the outpouring of support that immediately started happening on social media from players in the NFL, other NFL teams and just people across the world of sports and, and even beyond was just immediately you know thoughts and prayers you know, uh, how can they can even think about trying to go, go, go back and play this game, you know, um, before they decided to suspend it last night? Um, it, you know, it's really been, you know, um, I mean, quite honestly, just nice to see, you know, especially on social media. We all talk about, you know, the problems that we have on there. One interesting thing, Marie, uh, to point out is, you know, DeMar Hamlin, he, he's from Pittsburgh. He went to college in Pittsburgh. Um and he has a charity that, you know, has like a, it's like a GoFundMe that raises money to collect, you know, money to get kids presents at Christmas. And, um, I mean, since last night, almost $4 million has been donated to his charity. I mean, just because, you know, people all across America, and I would assume all over the world, just want to just say, you know, we're with you, best wishes, 5 bucks, 10 bucks, $25, and it just has added up. And so $4 million was donated um, since the incident occurred last night. Yeah, it's strange when something like that can unite so many people, but I guess that's the, the beauty of sport um, at times. So tell us a little bit about him then, because um, if you're not an NFL fan, you probably won't know who Damar Hamlin is. Yeah, so he's in his second year um, playing with the Bills. He was drafted um, in 2021. He's a defensive back. Um, from all indications, that he had stepped into the starting role earlier this season um, when uh, another Bills player was injured and has played very well. And, and from all indications, you know, I mentioned he was from Pittsburgh. He went to college in Pittsburgh. Um, 
Mike Tomlin, the, the Steelers head coach, um, I just saw he was asked about it at his weekly press conference today. And um, he said, look, I've known this kid since he was 12 years old, you know, at different football camps and, you know, just seeing him in the city. And he's like, he's a he's a great guy from all indications. It shows that this guy is a high class, great character um, and is, you know, not out in the in the streets causing trouble or anything like that. I mean, uh, he, he he's just someone that people can really look up to. And um, the reactions that have been pouring in across the world of sports and, and from everywhere else, you know, again, it's just great to see. I will say this, Marie, you know, just recently, I mean, within the last maybe 20 or 30 minutes, the NFL has announced that they're not going to they're not going to resume the game this week. And so, um, again, I don't know how the Bills could even try to get into the mind frame of attempting to play a football game this week. And so they the NFL's not made any decision regarding the resumption of the game. I think at this time, I, I, I don't even know if if. Maybe if this impacts any of the other games the rest of this weekend, they're supposed to be someone Saturday and, you know, back to action on Sunday. It's obviously going to be at the forefront of everybody's mind, whether you're watching it in the stands, you're playing in the game, or you're watching it from your home. Um, and until we get more of an update, this is all anybody's going to be thinking about with the world, in the world of sports this week. Absolutely. Um, Jeff Shepard, thank you so much for that. And we'll be keeping an eye on how it um, all plays out. And we wish him, uh, Damar Hamlin, all the best um, in his recovery. Shep, we will talk to you soon. We're going to take a very quick break, but stay with us. Greg Allen is standing by to look ahead to golf in 2023. Game on on 2FM. Now, welcome back. I'm delighted to say that Greg Allen has stepped into studio. Paul Corey is with us still. Paul, you have a bit of breaking news. Yeah, massive news. And I said earlier on the show that I wasn't expecting Evan Ferguson <laughs> to start many games for Brighton. And that's exactly what he's doing tonight. He's starting his first game or leading the line against Everton. So a massive opportunity for him. Just, just gone 18. It's, it's magnificent to see him, uh, you know, progressing within Brighton. And with Danny Welbeck out injured, this is a huge chance for him to step up. It feels like as well that it was the right move for him to go there you know to of all the clubs that probably wanted him that this was the one that would suit him and give him the opportunities yeah for me they're probably the, the best run club in the Premier League if you ask me given the resources that they have everything they do off the pitch seems to be spot on just look at McAllister who would have been an absolute nobody to, to many people in football two years ago and he's gone on and he's won a, a World Cup with Argentina they do get a lot right and uh, that is with their recruitment with the progression of the younger players and just their overall kind of management of the club so a great environment for Evan Ferguson to be in it just shows you though Deserby's not long in the door there he's got a, obviously a very good look at him during the World Cup and he's he's obviously ticking a lot of the boxes because to throw him in in a, in a big night t- like tonight is a, is a huge vote of confidence Yeah we'll all be rushing home to watch him but we still have Greg Allen with us before we get to that uh, Greg, Paul gave us an expectation earlier that didn't uh, come to pass. <laughs> uh, looking ahead now to, to the year, um, 2022 for golf was great. It was compelling. It was interesting. It was exciting. There was drama. Are you expecting more of the same in 2023? Well, if you look at it from an Irish perspective, it's possibly the most exciting year in prospect because we've never had four players in the top 30 of the world rankings. And, you know, I include in that the second highest player in the world rankings is Leona Maguire. And her progress uh, has been just nothing short of stellar because when she turned pro in 2018, um, she actually didn't get her card the first year. And so it's really since 2019 and through the COVID years that she has progressed from basically 
round 200 in the world to number 11 in the world. Uh, top 10 in the uh, LPGA's Order of Merit last year, CME Globe, uh, race to the CME Globe. And in the finale of that, in the Tour Championship, she finished second. Uh, and she's also put in some really good major performances, none better than her fourth place in the, in the Women's British Open. So uh, it's so often lost that this resurgence in Irish golf, you know, does not include Leona mm-hmm. McGuire. It very, very much does. And, you know, by the end of the year, Leona Maguire may well be the top ranked Irish player in world rankings for all we know we just don't know where her talent is going to quite take her because she's such a methodical mm-hmm. well prepared uh, she's got a little plan I think and that little plan probably is to get into the top five in the world and win a major in 2023 so I'm starting with Leona Maguire because I don't think she gets nearly enough attention for what she has done it has been stellar and when you think that all of the Irish men have had the role model of Padraig Carrington winning majors to follow and uh, you know f- effectively we've got Seamus Power world number 29 Shane Lowry world number 20 and Rory McIlroy world number one she has had nobody to follow. She has blazed mm. the trail all by herself. So I'm very excited uh, for, obviously, Leona. You know, what can you say about um, both Shane Lowry and Rory McIlroy? They're, they're both in uh, probably the best vein of form in their career. I was on this programme about uh, a month ago saying that the analysis of Rory McIlroy's game, uh, the data golf analysis, which is the st- minute analysis of the statistics that really kind of matter for a player, putting, approach play, driving, accuracy and all of those things. It has never been at a higher quotient than it is right now in his entire career. His peaks in 2012 and 2014 when he won his uh, major first major championships in 2011, his second major championship in 2012 and two major championships in 2014. None of those peaks are as high as they are right now in terms of the full roundness of the skills of his game. Uh, Shane Lowry, he himself admitted in an interview I did uh, on Radio 1 on, on Saturday Sport that last week that, you know, 2022 was his second best year of his career. We all know what the best year of his career was, 2019 and winning the Open. And what can we say about Seamus Power? That talent is just moving at such a rate from outside the world's top 400 two years ago to number 29 in the world. Such an exciting period. And that's just the Irish players, you know. <laughs> and, and you look at a, and what Liv has, has done mm-hmm. to the game and what, what will unfold over the next while with regard to Liv. Um, I think it's been a very quiet last month or so for Liv. They've had their uh, main chief operating officer and president, Atil Kozla. He's resigned. He's, he's stepped away. Uh, before that, earlier in the year, Sean Bratches, their chief commercial officer, stepped away. So what is happening with the momentum that Liv gained from June to October, all driven by the personality that is uh, Greg Norman? Mm-hmm. Um, what's going to happen to that? Like, there was rumours that they get Patrick Cantley. They're going to sign Xander Schauffley. Um, and that hasn't happened and it's all gone a little bit quiet and there's this big court case in February where the European Tour Group will be taking on Liv as to whether or not the players who are playing for Liv can play in European Tour events or DP World Tour events. That will be a very big one in determining the momentum of Liv going forward and whether or not we will see Greg Norman in the role of CEO by the end of the year. That's a... Sort of a lot of to look forward to as you think about yeah. it, you know, both both on and off the course. Yeah, you're going to be busy by the sounds of it, Greg, because if you're covering all the men's majors, you're going to be had, have to be heading over to the women's majors as well. And the Solheim Cup and the Ryder Cup <laughs> are on the same, you know, back to back weeks in September, and the Irish Open on back to back weeks, the Irish Women's Open and the Irish uh, Men's Open on back to back weeks in September. So September is the month for non major golf. It'll be a very major uh, month of, of golf uh, all the same. So we should appreciate this, Greg Allen time, because you'll be you'll be gone after this. Um, this can't last forever but <laughs> no. when you think about it it's been lasting since 2007 you know with his 10 major championship victories in, since 2007 and there were none for the previous 60 years so if you had one wish for Irish players sorry for Irish players 
2023, what would be your dream? Like, what would be for you the one thing you'd like to see happen? Uh, just I'll give one you major two. for each of them, you know, that'll <laughs> do fine. You know? No, I, I want to see one of them win a major yeah. because I think uh, 2022 had everything bar a major championship win because, like, I think uh, people forget that, like, Shane Lowry had a real run at winning the Masters and he finished third in the end. But when he came to the fourth hole on Sunday, he was right in the thick of it and he took a triple bogey on the on the par three, tough par three that it is, but, it, you know, he was right in the thick of winning it and he fought back to finish third. Rory with that uh, hole out from a bunker on 18 and a final round 64 finished second so my big wish would be that an Irishman wears a green jacket a green <laughs> white an orange flag will have a green jacket uh, might be draped around a green jacket that'd be that'd be my dream because it's the one major golf championship that has not been won by an Irish male golfer and my other dream would be that mm-hmm. Leona Maguire breaks through and wins the Open the AIG Women's British Open at Walton Heath which I think will suit her down to the ground it's a, a golf course a Heathland golf course which I think she'll, she'll love it'll be something similar to I suppose what we we experienced, you know, in in Britain and Ireland as a as a favourite sort of golf course to play on. Um, so there would be my wishes that uh, <laughs> Leona wins the IG Women's British Open and uh, an Irishman wins the Masters. Well, Greg Allen, I hope that they come true. Um, some expectations there as well, like Paul Corey's uh, one with Evan Ferguson, who is starting for Brighton against Everton. Uh, that's all we have time for, Greg. Thank you so much for coming in, uh, Paul Corey. You too. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow um, analysing all of tonight's Premier League action. <laughs> 2FM.